Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. As a kid, I grew up with this living fear of my father, unfortunately. He exuded this stern powerful demeanor and personality that simply made me afraid, creating lots of anxiety in me and my mother and sister. It was basically his way or the highway. And that's simply the way it was. And I grew to fear him and his potential anger, which was never, at least it never seemed to me that it was that far from the surface. Now, years later, here I was a man in my 40s with a wife of my own and our two children, and I was still afraid of my father. In fact, My fear of him only completely dissipated after he died because he could no longer get angry with me, right? Well, I realized my response to my dad was simply not healthy, but I couldn't for the life of me get beyond it even long after I became a Christian. My dad simply induced fear in me. That was his nature. When my wife and I visited him in the hospital after his cancer surgery later on in life, even though here he was groggy in bed with tubes hooked up to him, I was still afraid of him. A Native American saying goes like this, what I live with, I learn. What I learn, I practice. What I practice, I become. You know, the job we have as Christians is to unlearn some of the things we've learned and ultimately mirror by learning new things the character of Christ within us. Now, you can probably figure out that this fear of my father translated to my fear of God after I became a Christian, right? That's not too hard to believe. Since I couldn't see God but had an earthly father that I did see and hear, I associated God with the same personality that I saw in my dad. I was I was very much like the bad servant in the parable of the talents found in Matthew 25, 14 through 30, who unfortunately was terribly wrong about the master of the house. Now, notice in that section of scripture, in just two verses, verses 24 and 25, we see the servant's attitude toward his master. Quote, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. Well, the servant admits to his master that he lived in fear of him, and he saw the master inaccurately as a man who took what was not his to take. And this wrong view of the master of the house created the way the servant responded to the master. And unfortunately, he was way off base. He was tragically wrong. But now let's look at the master's response in verses 26 and 27. Quote, but his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Oh, you knew that I reaped where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. I can almost hear sarcasm in there. Maybe not for you, but I can. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So the wrong view the servant held of his master was wrong indeed and caused him to act out of fear, falsely ascribing to the master what wasn't accurate. And it really froze him up inside the servant. And he really couldn't think clearly and didn't do even the minimal thing of taking that talent and depositing it in the bank and then returning it to the master with interest. He didn't even think of that because his fear stymied him. 
So that type of fear is not only wrong, but creates within us absolutely terrible decisions which flow from that fear. But what's interesting here is that the Bible tells us throughout Scripture that we are to fear the Lord. We often define that fear by saying things like, well, fear in this case is reverential awe or great respect for. Now, in the English Standard Version of the Bible, the phrase fear the Lord, those three words, fear the Lord, that appears 27 times just in the new, the uh, English Standard Version of the Bible. But beyond that, there are dozens more passages that tell us something about fearing the Lord. So as a kid, I believed as long as I did the right thing outwardly, my dad would not bring down the hammer on me. And as a Christian, I tended to think the same thing about God. And because of that, my obedience toward God was the same thing it was toward my father. I did it externally and often grudgingly. It didn't come from the heart. It was something I put on out of fear because I thought, well, that's how I was supposed to act toward God so he wouldn't get angry with me because that's how it was with my father. Now, over the years, the Lord eventually began to show me what he actually meant by the phrase, fear the Lord. And I want to share three facets of the fear of the Lord so that we're all on the same page, at least as far as my understanding is concerned from a biblical perspective. So we're going to look at what is the fear of the Lord? What does the fear of the Lord accomplish? And how is the fear of the Lord developed? To get started, we're going to get, we're going to look at a variety of passages, but one specifically, which is to get us going, Isaiah 11, two to three, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make of him quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. So that one phrase appears twice in those two verses, the fear of the Lord. Now, these two phrases describe attributes that indwelt our Lord Jesus as he walked this earth 2,000 years ago in human form. That's what this passage is referring to. It's looking ahead to the life of Jesus on earth. And the phrase, shall make of him quick understanding of the fear of the Lord, has this sense of Jesus actually delighting and reveling in the fear of the Lord. It's, it's like a racehorse prior to the release of the starting gate. Our Lord lived and delighted for the purpose of fearing the Father. That was his motivation at every turn. He couldn't wait. It was not a burden to him. It was what motivated him. So let's look at the three things related to the proper fear of the Lord. First of all, what is fear of the Lord? Is it just reverential awe? Is it having great respect for it? Well, it incorporates those things, but how does that translate to us as Christians? And we've seen what the fear of the Lord is not. I gave you a perfect example of that at the beginning. It's not being so afraid of someone that you do what's right 
out of that fear because you're afraid that if you don't do it correctly, you're going to reap the terrible consequences of that. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. So let's consider what the Bible means when it tells us to fear the Lord. There are generally two definitions, biblically speaking, of fear that is related to God. Uh, John Bunyan in his classic, The Fear of God, tells us that for every person, God is either one of two things. He is either Savior or he is Judge. Every person falls under one of those headings. So there is a fear of God's judgment. So this type of fear is often experienced by the person who is outside of salvation who hasn't yet received it. And for that person, any fear they might experience where God is concerned is a fear of judgment. Now, what's interesting about this is that fear can ultimately lead to Christ and salvation, but too often does not. Why? Because they continually reject it. And Paul outlines this perfectly in chapter one of Romans. Now, Proverbs 1.7 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we've got tons and tons of people going through this life, ending their life through death, and they have rejected the fear of the Lord because they have foolishly despised wisdom and instruction. They didn't want to hear it. And instead they became more and more and more godless, further removed from God's grace. But there's another fear of the Lord that occurs after we become saved that is supposed to grow within us and motivate us to live as he wants us to live, just like we learn from Isaiah 11, 2 to 3. Remember, guys, from before, I read that at the top. Well, there's, there's a fear after salvation. I think that's interesting, a fear after salvation. Is this a biblical fear? And if so, what is it supposed to look like in the life of the believer? Well, clearly, the way I used to fear God was 100% wrong. It did nothing to further my relationship with God and, in essence, pushed me away from him far too often. That was my doing. So the best way I can describe this proper fear of the Lord, and this is the important thing here, it is in having a constant, growing desire to live in a way that does not offend our Lord. So we need to live as Christians with a mindset of always basing our decisions on whether or not my decision, my action, my words, my thoughts, my deeds, whatever, is it going to offend the Lord? Is it going to sadden him? Is it going to disappoint him severely? Is it going to grieve him? That's what I need to be concentrating on. So my wife and I are going to celebrate 37 years of marriage in a few months. And quite frankly, I can't imagine being married to anyone else. Now, over the years, what I've noticed has grown within me is the desire to never offend my wife by doing something really stupid. And I'm sure guys listening to me know exactly what I mean. Now, that doesn't mean that temptations don't come. And it means at all costs, like Joseph I ignore them and even flee from them if it comes to that. So it is because I love my wife that I want to be sure to not offend her by doing something that I would regret and that would, re- it would grieve or disappoint or sadden her. I don't want that. And it's not because I fear my wife, because I don't. She doesn't fear me. I love her. I appreciate her. And I try to live in a way that proves this to her on a daily basis. Am I perfect at it? Absolutely no. No, not at all. 
However, when I do make those stupid mistakes due to my own selfishness, she is so quick to forgive that it's remarkable. What man doesn't want a wife like that? Now, if I am able to do this with my wife, how much more should I be willing to do this with God? It makes sense, doesn't it? So I should be willing to couch everything with this idea that, well, is this going to offend God? Our relationship with God should be based on a very healthy fear of offending God that will motivate us to do only those things that please him and help stop us from doing those things that do not. Isaiah 11, 2, 3. It's a perfect description of how Christ lived his life. Some of you know we just rescued and, and adopted a pup named Scooby. Uh, he was not living in the greatest of circumstances. Well, we were a bit leery of getting another dog because we weren't sure how our older dog would react, who's just really calm, really chill. He's not an alpha. He's not a beta. Excuse me. He's not an alpha or an omega, but he's a beta. And we weren't sure what this pup would turn out to be because you get another dog in the mix and it can throw things off. I'm sure dog owners listening understand that perfectly. But we did take him in because of his situation and our older dog and the new pup are now good buddies. And one thing my wife and I have noticed is that the new pup is extremely intelligent. He's also become very, very loyal and protective of us and it shows in his actions. If you come to our house, he will bark at you, possibly slightly growl, move away from you. His The hair on his back of his head and on his back might rise up a little bit. However, if you meet us outside our house at the store and he's with us, he's not going to react that way. He's going to be much more friendly. He's very protective of us and he's very loyal. It literally, it, it's something that he literally revels to do. He loves to do that. Why? Because he loves us and we praise him. So his loyalty, uh, loyalty to us causes him to do the right thing nearly always. And for that, he gets heaps of praise and treats. He understands, for instance, no, yes, here, wait, sit, and more. He wants us to make he wants to make us happy by doing the things he understands we want him to do. And the relationship that we have developed with Scooby is built on his desire to not do things that will cause us concern and possible discipline for him. He is amply rewarded for doing the right things as well. And we heap lots of love on him and our other dog, of course. So Scooby does not want to offend so he tries to always do the right thing. He understands where he was rescued from and what he has now. You know, he makes mistakes. He's a puppy still, but we don't beat him when he does, even if that meant killing a couple of our chickens because he thought they were toys. In that case, we take pains to modify his behavior when it comes to our flock. And that does not include beating him. It has to do with positive rewards and certain negative actions. So Jesus, as we read in Isaiah, delighted in living in the fear of offending the Father moment by moment. He looked forward to do it in all opportunities that came his way. Honestly, folks, I really believe that this is where it all starts for the Christian as far as the practical application of the truth of Scripture. So because Jesus properly feared the Father, 
Jesus was given tremendous wisdom, insight, discernment, and humility as a result, something that is open to all of us who seek to learn and live the fear of offending the Lord. Now, if we were able to do it as perfectly as Jesus, we would be as perfect as Jesus without the deity. But we can't because we have a sin nature. But this is something that we must strive to do on a daily basis. Psalm 86, 11 tells us, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Okay, here's the reality. That last statement really comes first. If our hearts are united in fear of God, fear of offending God, he will teach us his way. We will be walking in your truth. Ecclesiastes 12.13 tells us this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Again, you fear God, you fear offending God, and you will be keeping his commandments because you'll have a greater understanding of what not to do. Psalm 34.9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. We will be more and more like Christ, just as God the Father met Jesus' needs every day, moment by moment, because Jesus feared offending God. And we see this throughout the Bible with many saints of old and prophets and other people. This is, way, this is the way he will deal with us. So there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of, of, of passages in scripture that talk about this. Proverbs 14, 26, Proverbs 23, 17, Proverbs 9, 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, very much like the first one I read, Proverbs 1, 7, but this one says, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Wow. So you fear the Lord and you're going to have a greater understanding through wisdom of the knowledge of the holy and how to live that way. Clearly, God wants us to fear offending him. He doesn't want us to fear approaching him because Paul tells us that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, but he does want us to a fear to fear offending him. He wants us to take sin so seriously that to consider it means I'd be offending God. So that's what fear of the Lord is. It is a growing passionate desire not to offend God by doing something in our thought, word, or deed that is ultimately sin. But what does the fear of the Lord accomplish in us? Well, first of all, a proper fear of the Lord creates an ability within us, as I kind of intimated, to resist temptation. Let's look at a couple of examples here. In Genesis 39, Joseph is faced with unwanted propositions from Potiphar's wife. We know the story. Joseph did what he could do to physically avoid her constant temptations to lie with her. But Joseph wanted nothing to do with it, and he would not yield. So where did Joseph get the power and ability to resist Potiphar's wife? She was probably attractive. She saw him as attractive. How did he resist? Did he just grit his teeth and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Or some, there was there motivating factor deep within him that allowed him to get to that point, that brought him to that point. Well, I believe it had to stem from the fact that he learned to fear offending the Lord all those years in prison. 
he had given himself over to God, God had blessed, and then he grew to the point where he realized he did not want to offend God. You know, if you look at the life of Joseph, I'm sure he sinned, but it's not in Scripture. We don't see instances where he sinned. The same is the case with Daniel. They both sinned. They were both sinners, but the Scripture does not highlight their sin as it does with other people. So Joseph's fear of offending God created the ability within to not sin against God. And it's interesting when Potiphar trapped, Potiphar's wife trapped him and, you know, was really being direct. Joseph became direct as well in verse nine of Genesis 39. He says to her basically this, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Notice Joseph's concern was how God would react to Joseph's sin. That's implied in his question. So he did not want to offend God. And he knew giving into Potiphar's wife, giving into her, would be a supreme offense to God, and it would mar his relationship with God. What was it that gave Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the ability to not only resist Nebuchadnezzar, but to essentially rebuke him in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18? Listen to this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. Now, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Please notice, it says, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. They weren't concerned about, gee, how do we nuance this so we won't get the king mad? No, they just came out and said it. In other words, they were not afraid of offending Nebuchadnezzar, but their desire to not offend God was supreme. That's what guided them, their motives, their actions, their words. There are many biblical examples of how people gained the victory over life circumstances and the temptation to sin because they feared offending the Lord. Time obviously doesn't permit us to list them all. You can do some research on your own. But here are just a few examples of what happened when people stopped fearing to offend the Lord. When they, when they no longer thought of it, even for a few moments, maybe longer for a period of time, this is what happened. Remember, humble Moses, November uh, Numbers 12.3. Why did Moses, instead of simply speaking to the rock as God had commanded in Numbers 20, strike the rock in disobedience? Because in that moment, Moses was not thinking of how his actions might offend the Lord. His anger led him and he sinned terribly. His anger was okay, but it caused him actually to do the wrong thing. Why did King David, who spent much of his life being a man after God's own heart and always seemingly making the correct decision, why did he not only lust after Bathsheba, but committed adultery with her and then had her husband Uriah killed to cover his sin? My goodness, Second Samuel 11, how does that happen? Well, it was because during that period of his life, he lacked the fear of offending the Lord, causing him to think about and give in to sin. David had the exact opposite response to the temptation he faced that Joseph had because Joseph did fear offending the Lord. It had been cultivated. It had been constant. It was there. 
And I believe that cultivating the proper fear of offending the Lord creates within the believers the following attributes. It gives us the ability to resist temptations to sin, Psalm 86, 11. It provides humility, Proverbs 22, 4. It gives us a greater knowledge and a growing knowledge of the holy, Proverbs 9, 10. And it gives us a depth of understanding and wisdom that guides our life. And that's found throughout the Proverbs, as well as um, Psalms. Isn't it amazing, though, when we speak of Proverbs, because Solomon wrote most of them, that Solomon is said to be the wisest man who ever lived, except, of course, for Jesus. Yet we look at Ecclesiastes and we wonder, Dude, what happened to you, Solomon? Why didn't his wisdom keep him from doing what the pagans did? Why did it allow him to do the things that God detested and was offended by? So though extremely wise, Solomon seemed to not fear the Lord in many instances, which proves that wisdom alone cannot do what the fear of offending the Lord can and does do. So, so far we've learned that the fear of the Lord is a strong, growing desire to not offend God. And we've also learned what the fear of offending the Lord creates within us. So the last thing we're going to talk about here briefly is how is the fear of the Lord developed? Do we just pray for it? Do we put it on? What do we do? How is it developed? After, by the way, we become Christians. Is it all God? Does he do it? Does he do that work in us or do we have a hand in its development? Well, if you look at the new covenant described in Jeremiah 32, it speaks directly to the nation of Israel, right? That's who Jeremiah the prophet was uh, called to minister to and speak to. However, those saved through Jesus and baptized into his body receive many of the same benefits. So ultimately it speaks to the church as well. Quote, and I will give them one heart and one way that they may Fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Jeremiah 32, 39 and 40. I think that that's very interesting here. What God will do one day with the final remnant of the nation of Israel, Romans 9 through 11, he does within the lives of every person who receives salvation in Christ now. In other words, God starts the ball rolling in us. Ultimately, notice that people will fear God for how long, it says in verse 39. It says forever. God places. Isn't that interesting? Forever. So even after we die and go to the next life and live with Christ forever, we will be absolutely still fearing to offend him. That is what will motivate. That is what will keep us on the straight and narrow. That is what will keep us absolutely sinless. God places the fear of offending him within us at the moment of our new birth. And it is our job to develop it for the rest of our lives, causing it to grow and literally take over our lives and our walk with God. But again, how do we develop this fear of the Lord? How do we get to the point where we really want to not offend God? Well, five things real quickly. Psalm 119.11 says, thy word have I hid 
in my heart that I might not sin against you. You're familiar with that verse, I'm sure. You could probably recite it from memory. So what is it telling us? We hide the word in our heart. How do we do that? Well, we first have to read it. And then secondly, we have to meditate on it. And then thirdly, we have to memorize it and feed on it. And then we have to pray over it. And we have to actively focus on God's greatness by immersing ourselves in God's word on a daily basis. If you're not doing that, then that fear of the Lord is not going to grow. Yesterday, I was visiting a friend who was helping me repair my car, and I asked to use the bathroom. So I went into the bathroom, and on their mirror were several verses of Scripture on sticky notes so that when you're looking at the mirror, you see those verses. You see those verses, and you take the moment to read them and think about them. Revelation 15, 4 says, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you only are holy. So everyone according to John in the book of Revelation, will fear God, saved and unsaved. The problem is, Christians, we will always fear offending God. Unsaved will always be in fear of God and his judgment. Psalm 119.63 says, I am a companion of all who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. So we need to enjoy fellowship of other Christians who also desire to fear offending the Lord. So we need to have the word dwell in us richly by reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, praying over it. And then we need to enjoy the fellowship of other Christians who are also interested in doing that. And then we need to pray. We need to ask God to grow the fear of the Lord within him. Matthew 7, 7 tells us to ask and it'll be given to you. James 4, 2 tells us you don't have because you don't ask. And when you do ask, you ask amiss. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 reminds us that we should have confidence that if we ask him anything according to his will, he hears us. Okay, so question, is anything more appropriate than asking God to grow the fear of offending him that he put within us when we were saved? I don't think so. I think that's where it all starts. In conclusion, it is interesting that in Job 1, we are told in verses 1 and 8 that Job feared God. Job lived the way he lived because he feared the Lord or feared offending the Lord. He didn't want to do that. He lived in a way that made him grow in that area of fearing God. Yet when we get to Job 40, we see something very interesting. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Verses three and four. And in Job 42, one to two, we learn this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. In verses five and six, Job confesses this. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Wherefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Isn't that amazing? But wait, didn't Job fear offending the Lord way back in Job chapter 1? Absolutely. That's what the Bible says. He did fear the Lord. But Job did not fear offending the Lord enough, which tells us that this is a process of growth that every believer goes through. It's something we call sanctification. And quite frankly, I believe this is the root of it. 
This is the basis for our growth. This is how we grow in sanctification. We should strive to be like Christ, of whom Isaiah the prophet said that Jesus would literally delight in fear of the Lord. So what is it you fear? What is it I fear? Do you fear the loss of a job? Do you fear the loss of a loved one? Do you fear your own death? There are many things we can fear. But the best thing that we can do as far as fear is concerned is fear offending God in thought, word, and deed so that he will be greatly glorified in our lives. And all I can ask is may we grow in that fear of offending the Lord every day, moment by moment. I want to thank you for joining me today, and I pray that this has been beneficial and beneficial for you and glorifying to the Lord. And until we meet again, I pray that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in Him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective. 